names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. Bizarro. Welcome to Escaping Society. <laughs> Episode 40, The Upside Down. And yes, we are officially over the hill. I'm Gumby. I'm Teresa. <laughs> <coughs> oh, you sound horrible. Teresa, that's a nasty look you're about to come up. Oh. Oh, Gumby. I mean, Teresa. <laughs> it had to go. <clears throat> well, anyway, we are in Durham, North Carolina, in uh, Northgate Park, which is a park we've used uh, many times before for podcasts. I think I see... I have really bad eyesight. I thought I just saw two flickers land on the same tree, but anyway. Yeah, often when you see one flicker, like, I've noticed that, that you, they tend to travel in, like, little groups. Huh. Or at a park, and there's a lot of, like, nice flickers. But anyway, we're kind of... That's a bird, by the way, a woodpecker. Um, so one of the things that like I've talked about before is there's this... I think of it as a wind, but this energy that comes around this time of year for me. The weather starts turning pretty, and like I start feeling like really moody, often depressed, sad. I, I hear other people talking about that. And uh, yeah, definitely struggling with that, feeling like... Uh, just unmotivated and grumpy and impatient. So anyway, we're going to try to like crank out this podcast anyway, because it's a topic that I think is really neat, but we've uh, been procrastinating and dragging our feet quite a bit. And we're both getting over a flu. So we both had a pretty something or something. Yeah. We're debating about that, but I think it's a flu and uh, it, it cooked our brains. We both had a really bad fever. So I kind of feel like my brain got fried a little bit. I don't feel quite like myself. Um, But Anyway, so the topic upside down, I've mentioned that in a couple episodes, <clears throat> and, you know, often I find myself talking about something, I'm like, this is a complete inverted truth. The truth is actually completely upside down from the way we think of it. So we wanted to do an episode exploring that a little bit more. A um, couple of upside down truths that right off the top of my head I think about, we did um, Drain on Society, and we asked the question... How do you justify benefiting from a society you're not contributing to? And um, I call that an upside-down truth because it's posed as something that's just offered to us. Like, oh, here's this great gift. Like, you know, you're not even contributing and you're getting all these benefits. But the truth put back right side up is that this way of living is imposed on us. We don't really have any other choices. If you try to choose something other than this way of life that's laid out for you, um, you immediately start stepping into this realm that you might call outlaw. Mm -hmm. Um, you're, You're always in jeopardy. You're always under surveillance. You're always being run off from somewhere or the threat of being run off from somewhere. So I consider that an upside down truth. And the very next episode we had was, uh, if I didn't have kids, and so there's another upside-down truth we've explored. If I didn't have kids, I, I'd do more of this. Like, I'd rebel more. I'd resist more. I might join a, a fight of some kind. And what kind of shit is that? So did you just have a kid so you didn't have to do anything else? 
<laughs> yeah, so to me, that's an upside-down truth. But because you have kids, you should be more invested in the future in this culture. You should be on the front lines fighting the most, and you've got a little... A little you, a little a little person of the next generation that is looking to you to see how to be in this world. Um, God, they need more heroes. They don't need to see more robots conforming to, to the madness and complaining constantly, oh, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't work, yet I'm going to do it anyway. Hmm. Um, you know, these are the people that should be the most role modeling how to fight, how to try to fight, even if you don't know what you're doing, how to like put your stake in the ground and be that dog soldier and not budge another inch. This is as far as I'm going into the madness. It stops here. Um, God, that's what the kids need to see. So to me, that's a, an inverted truth. Teresa, you got any inverted truths off the top of your head that you want, that you think of? Well, I said that one a couple episodes back about um, leadership and how it seemed like in tribes that the leaders would be the ones not only that would like have the least in other words they weren't rich because they were taking care of their tribe they were giving anything that they had to the the people in their tribe that needed it but they were also people that were often not wanting to be the leader like they were chosen for that particular trait of no, 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 you, you don't want me to be the leader. And that's when, like, the, the elders of the tribe would know we got the right person. Yeah, I totally agree. When you think about it, I mean, who you'd want to follow. I consider myself an anarchist, and uh, I've had people say, so, you know, I guess you don't believe in, in following anybody. That's just chaos. No, I don't believe in having leadership imposed on me. But if there's a natural leader... Um, hell yeah, we all have our own talents. I would definitely follow somebody's cue. Teresa and I have to like decide, you know, which one of us is the leader in every activity. Um, sometimes I'd say like there's a complete equality, but often there's a topic that comes up that we, you just have to defer like, okay, this is your ground. This is the, the stuff that you're better at. I'm going to follow your lead on this. To me, that is no, um, what would I say, uh, inversion of anarchism. Um, you follow a natural leader. And when I think of the person I'd want to follow, it is that person I hear described in indigenous cultures as the chief, the person who is the most generous, the person looking out for you, the person who's got your back, um, not the person who's greedily holding on to more stuff, who's showing themselves to be petty and childish. Or the person that is willing to spend millions upon millions of dollars to advertise their campaigns. Yeah. And the Super Bowl. And almost uniformly, with a few exceptions, that's what we see are our leaders, the people who want to be leaders and who want to gain power from it. And it's not even a, uh, a questionable thing. They obviously are using it for power. They're, they're wealthier than the rest of us. There's, they're more famous. They're, um, yeah, it's just it's a complete inverted truth. So I'd agree with you on that, Teresa. Um, any other inverted truths? Uh, well... Uh, continuing with the money concept, having a lot of money uh, make you, makes you happier. Please elaborate. Oh, boy. I really, yeah. Um, some money could bring you some happiness, but having more upon more upon more money doesn't necessarily bring you more and more and more happiness. Can't buy me love. I buy you a beer that's close yeah when the beer does help if you get a high alcohol percentage especially <laughs> <clears throat> but i feel like we live in a culture that's completely upside down when you start looking for inverted truth you see them everywhere um 
a lot of people say, especially here in the West, you know, that our culture is a Christian culture. I hear that get said a lot, and with good reason. All the presidents have claimed to be Christians, and I'm not sure if we even now have a climate of a political climate where a person could become a president without saying they're Christian and have that kind of backing. Um, And Christianity itself is a complete inverted truth. You've got a guy, Jesus Christ, that apparently gave up all, renounced all wealth, all possessions. He's traveling around. He's identifying with the poorest people in his culture. These are my people. These are the people he spends time around. When people decide they want to follow him and become apostles, they inevitably stop working, give up their their materialistic lifestyles and follow him. He went into the desert for 40 days to seek God, you know, to to choose nature, God over mammon. And yet, what do we see in the followers? We see the complete opposite. Um, We see the most materialistic people. And, you know, this wasn't accidental. This was the the Roman Empire co-opting the Christian movement. You know, how do we handle this? So, I feel like a lot of this upside down, this, this, these inverted truths around us are half intentional. They're half orchestrated um, to control us. I think about lawyers, you know, like how odd it is that we have such a level of complexity in our culture um, that we need an interpreter to understand <laughs> the law. Like you go into court, you're just immediately overwhelmed, you know, you get a lawyer to interpret for you, to plead your case. The fact that we don't object to that alone, I think, says a lot. Um, I remember what it was like when I was uh, getting in trouble with the courts all the time when I was younger in my 20s, and I would represent myself. Um, I learned pretty quick to turn down the lawyers because they would make deals behind my back and uh, say things that I didn't want said. Um, and just what a madhouse it was. It reminds me of uh, Lewis and Carroll. I wrote down that... Lewis. Lewis, Lewis and Carroll. Lewis Carroll writing Alice in Wonderland in 1865. You know, he's describing Victorian England. And, um, you know, here's Alice, the the simple protagonist. Um, Alice, for the most part, who makes sense to us in the story. And she goes to sleep after, you know, studying with her tutor about her lessons, her lessons presumably of how to be a proper lady in Victorian society, an adult. And in this dream, she goes down the rabbit hole and just meets all these strange echoes of the adult world, the, the mad hatter at the tea party, the, the ruling elite, the red queen painting the roses red, the soldiers who just fall all over themselves like a deck of cards. Um, I remember getting a hold of a book when I was younger that was Alice in Wonderland, and it was annotated. There were as many notes about the book as there were the story itself. And I was reading all those notes, and it was fascinating because, you know, so many of these things were allusions to the madness of the culture. And to me, this whole book is about the upside down. It's about Alice trying to come to terms with these these mad people um, around trying to make nonsense sound like sensibility. And she keeps countering, you know, I wish I'd have wrote down some quotes from there. There's so many good... Uh, dialogues in there where people are just saying complete nonsense and trying to force it upon her. And that's the upside down. Lewis um, Lewis Carroll, he was a strange guy himself, but <laughs> you know, I've, I've heard that he took pictures of, of naked girls, like little girls, and um, you know, like that 
is what it is. But I've also heard that all the girls that were involved in this, you know, there wasn't a, a whole bunch, I say all the girls, but there was a handful. And they, as they grew up, they described it as a positive experience. Like, I haven't heard accounts of people condemning him for sexual harassment or whatever. They apparently, whatever uh, format he did this in, they felt like it was good. And he is described as having um, really had a passion and a love for childhood that I've never heard actually said was sexual, even though it sounds so suspicious by our cultural standards. Um, And he said the biggest tragedy that he saw was when kids grew up. He thought that was just horrible that that happened to kids. They grew up. And I don't think he meant that they just got bigger. I think he meant that they got conditioned into this society. So to me, he's a big advocate for upside-down truths. Hmm. And another big advocate, when I don't say, I shouldn't say advocate for upside-down truths, but a observer of this upside-down truth is definitely George Orwell, 1984. He wrote the book 1984 in 1949. (laughs) And he goes on to describe in his book terms like newspeak. And if you look up newspeak on the internet, it says ambiguous euphemistic language used chiefly in political propaganda. He also uses a word called doublethink, which is defined as the acceptance of or mental capacity to accept contrary opinions or beliefs at the same time, especially as a result of political indoctrination. Now, I know you did a little bit of studying on words that might fit in with this. Mm. Are there any words um, that you want to give us as examples, Teresa? Um, well, yeah, I have some some words. I'm not, a, I'm not sure they would be exactly uh, doublespeak or newspeak, but um, some of them you're probably familiar with. So... Affirmative action, um, that is a word that it's said to be preferred, uh, preferring minorities or the historically disadvantaged. And it's also said to be a euphemism for something uh, along the lines of reverse discrimination or positive discrimination in the UK, uh, which itself sounds like a spin on words. So you've got this person who is from a historically disadvantaged group of people and you're going to give them preferential treatment to obtain a position, to get a job. And that's supposed to be a good thing, right? Because now we have more representation of this particular group of people in the workforce. But how does that make that person feel? I mean, even if they're on board with affirmative action, like, hell yeah, I got this job. Other people around them are probably going to have a difficult time coming to terms with that. And yeah. what what kind of situation do we put people in? Is it really a good thing? I think that, like, people that get jobs through affirmative action, I would imagine a lot of them feel okay with it because we... I think affirmative action is supposed to be for like minority groups that are oppressed and not getting a fair break, and so they're pro- probably happy to get any break they can. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you in the the larger framing of it. Like, what what are the implications on a bigger picture? You know, are we actually helping people be equal? Mm-hmm. You know, and that makes me think of uh, the helpers. You know, there's a uh, group of upside down inverted truthers. If I ever saw one. You're always taught, one of the things I've heard a lot in my life is make a difference. 
Like, how are you going to make a difference? You need to make a difference. It's, it's just almost assumed you need to make a difference. Every politician, they run on a platform of change. No politician gets up there and tries to get your vote by saying, I'm going to keep things exactly the way they are. I'm not going to change a <laughs> damn thing. Um, everybody, you know, Bernie Sanders, all the way to Trump, uh, to Obama before him. Every politician has some little catchy slogan, has some way of saying, I'm going to change things. <clears throat> what does it say that we've created a whole culture that we all want it to change? No matter what color you are, no matter what class you're a part of, you're not happy with what's going on right now. Something's <laughs> got to change. And I think of these politicians as a form of helper, but not the only form of helper. You know, you might join, I don't know, hell, even a group of people that go to a park to pull up exotic invasives, the helpers. The helpers that go to third world countries and try to bring food and medicine to people starving. Why are the people starving? Why do the people have these diseases and these medicine, these uh, illnesses they need medicine? Because of the last group of helpers. Somebody went over there and, I don't know, maybe the last group of helpers decided they were going to teach them how to farm. And they were hunter-gatherer people. They were doing fine. Mm. You know, they, they had found a balance with the land they lived on. Otherwise, they would not be there without advanced medicine, without advanced technology. And so we got the missionaries going over there to help them, help them maybe save their souls. The missionaries, you know, I mentioned the Christians as kind of an inverted truth. Um, and a big part of that is colonization. And missionaries are a huge part of that. One of the first waves of colonization that you have show up are people that want to save your souls. And usually in the very same damn boat, you have the merchants. The people are going to bring goods. They're going to start trade with you. Um, so there's this wave. You know, they have to convince you first that you need to be saved. And before the people show up, we don't see in indigenous cultures a feeling of needing to be saved. Um, there's a balance that's been struck. It has to have been struck. Otherwise, the people wouldn't be surviving there. They wouldn't be there. The problems come when the helpers show up. And now that the helpers have showed up, now you have problems. Now trade has opened up. Now you don't have enough of something. Yeah. Um, and you can't make it yourself. That's why there's a lack. So you need to do something. Something needs to change, some way to make money to, to increase this trade. And then comes the conflict. Now we have the violence. This is the typical thing you think of when you think of colonization, the soldiers. Now change is forced upon you in ways that you don't want. You go through the whole, <clears throat> I'd say maybe the crest of the wave of colonization, and you have a broken people. Now you have a third world country. You have a place that has been raped and exploited to the max. And now, once again, we come in as helpers. <laughs> now we need helpers because the last helpers came in and fucked with stuff. Um, yeah, I can jump in there and talk a little bit about my experience of going to Nepal. Have you been to Nepal? Yes, I have. I'll be damned. And um, years ago getting this, I don't, it wasn't a really an invite, but it was just kind of like, oh, Teresa, you might, uh, you might enjoy this going over to an orphanage. And I'm like, okay, why? I don't really even like kids, um, all that much. And I went over there and I wasn't sure what to do, um, uh, with the kids, even though looking back, experiencing it, I realized just kind of being there with the kids was all they really wanted. Um, and why were these kids in, the, in an orphanage in the first place? Uh, because a nearby regime had uh, taken over and killed their parents. 
So I, I'm sure the United States didn't have anything to do with that. Um, but going over there and talking to the kids about, like, you know, learning English. And I remember there was this one girl that, this little girl said, like, why do I need to learn English? I'm from Nepal. Why do I need to, to speak English? And I was trying to, in my own helper way, you know, explain, like, I mean, it could have been German. It could have been Japanese. I don't know why English. It just is. And I'm here, so if you want to practice your English with me, you can do that. But why do they need to learn English? Because people are coming there as part of the tourism of the country, so they need to be able to speak to these foreigners that are not only bringing in money, but they're bringing in ideas, diseases, um, wreaking havoc on the landscape, taking things that were once sacred, like a mountain that everyone respected and dared not climb, and now it's open to climbers, and then we have to have people to guide them in. So all of these things, just because helpers decided, oh, look at these poor brown people. Maybe we should go in and, and teach them English. Maybe we should go in and stabilize their economy and bring in more trade and et cetera, et cetera. And I just feel kind of, uh, kind of like that little girl in Alice in Wonderland, Alice, just looking at this, go, shaking my head like, no, 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 wait. I thought that this was the right thing. I thought this was something that made sense. But now that I'm looking back on it, I kind of think that that was a mistake. Maybe we should all just stay out, like stay in our own country and get our own shit together instead of going somewhere else and, and thinking that we're helping. Yeah, and this makes me think of Daniel Quinn, like a big upside down truth that he talks about is more food production to stop hunger. And that's another part of colonization. You have, for the most part, and there's not just, like, as Quinn talks about, it's not just our culture. Our culture is the one that did it to the max and kind of gained power and took over the globe. But you see little little outbreaks of this uh, experiment you might call civilization of, you know, forming cities and importing goods to the city that have to be stolen from elsewhere. But a big part of this that goes hand in hand is an agrarian lifestyle to start producing more food. And to produce more food, you often um, have to have a hierarchical social structure, um, leaders that aren't out there toiling, but they're directing. And it just lends itself to a lot of bad things when you follow that rabbit down the hole. But the whole idea of more food um, to stop hunger, you know, we, we're not stopping hunger. We're just keeping it going because the, <laughs> the population doesn't have a chance to reach an equilibrium with their land. Famines don't keep going in hunter-gatherer societies. It doesn't mean that they all starve and get wiped out. It means that the population and the food of the land reach an equilibrium. There's always a little bit of ebb and flow. There's going to be times with a big larder, a big bounty of food, where the people can like, wow, really celebrate. The gods have really smiled upon us. They go out there and they've got all this great food. They dry it. They preserve some. Um, maybe their population increases a little bit during those years. But it's not considered a population explosion. It's a pretty small thing. And then there are hard times. But like we talked about the the leaders you know, these aren't times that you feel like you're suffering because the whole tribe is acknowledging, okay, this is just a hard winter. We pull together. And for the most part, 
we see people making it through it. I'm not going to say there aren't times that have just been devastatingly hard that actually cultures did get wiped out, but there's not a whole lot of times that this has happened when you look at all the number of tribes on the planet. It's just ebbs and flows, hard winters, good times, you know, like bountiful summers. And what we've created in our culture is we've taken an inverted truth. Because we have class hierarchy, we have people that never have hard times. Never. Or the hard times would have to be so hard that they're going to be the people hit last. And for the most part, they are our leaders. Um, They're the people in charge. And if they're not directly in charge, which I think a lot of these people have learned not to put yourself in front of the bullseye, Get behind the people in charge. You fund them. They answer to you. Um, as Teresa and I are studying history of the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, that was a time that it's really easy to see that when President McKinley got elected, for instance, bought and sold by the richest people in America. <clears throat> so there's no incentive to stop a famine. There's no way to stop a famine because this structure stays set. And so we keep feeling like the kind thing to do is to keep send food in from the outside. But that's the thing that created the problem in the first place. And so the famine keeps going. We don't want to address the actual problem, which is the culture, the social structure, because we know in the back of our heads, even if you're not Donald Trump or, or Bloomberg, even if you're lower middle class, you still know that that structure keeps you from feeling like you're on the bottom. You don't want to look at that crap too much because you don't like what that might call you out to have to do if you acknowledge what's happening. And so that's why famines are still there and they keep going. It's an inverted truth. You can't keep sending food to stop stop starvation unless it's on a very small scale. Obviously, if you're hungry and I've got a sandwich and I share a sandwich with you, that helps your hunger. But when you start talking about causes, the helpers, Mm -hmm. that's what I mean by the helpers too. I don't mean you can't help another human being. The helpers, what I mean, is a cause when it becomes an abstract thing. A program. A program, yeah. There was that great thing you read in uh, Anything Goes, that excerpt from uh, Beggars of Life, Life, where Jim Tully describes that very thing, that he knows people that, you know, um, think they're helping the, the group, the mob, but you can't help a mob. You can only help an individual. Mm -hmm. So I talked a little bit about 1984 and George Orwell, and I think that would probably be a good segue um, if you want to talk about George Bernays. No, Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays. Yeah, here's a fascinating guy that has a lot to do with upside-down truths. (laughs) Edward Bernays, um, he's often called the father of public relations. He was the author of such books as Propaganda and The Engineering of Consent. As in pro. (laughs) As well as crystallizing public opinion. He was also the double nephew of Sigmund Freud, so you can uh, take that as you will. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, okay, so his mother was the sister of Sigmund Freud, and his father's sister married Sigmund Freud. So, because... Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Good Lord. <laughs> and keep in I'm mind my own grandpa. <laughs> and keep in mind that Sigmund Freud, you know, he's considered like one of the what the father of modern psychology. Basically. And this is a guy that came from a family that all that was going on. <laughs> so Edward Bernays, he um he decided that he was going to take what he had discovered 
um, using during World War One. He was hired into the Committee on Public Information, um, and he worked uh, for several different causes during the wars. And he was going to use that during peacetime as well to influence people to do things like buy cigarettes. In fact, in one campaign for, I believe it was Liggett and Myers um, Tobacco Company, he was tasked with increasing sales of cigarettes with women. And he decided that in order to get women to buy the cigarettes, he would make thin be beautiful. And that way, because he had the support of some doctors saying that cigarettes were better than sweets, he could make the image of thin be beautiful in different advertising campaigns and then promote cigarettes as the answer to becoming thin. And before that, correct me if I'm wrong, like it wasn't considered if you met a woman like it was good that she had a little extra on her. It meant she didn't have a disease. Right. She was healthy. Yeah. That was solid weight. And now, like, we have this image of, like, these real thin models, and it, you know, apparently started at least in part with this bastard to sell cigarettes. Yeah. And, by the way, he never let his wife smoke cigarettes. He tried to get her to stop smoking cigarettes because he knew they were bad. So that's a little – another window into the type of, the type of person that he was. Um, God, yeah, he, um, he said a lot of really disturbing stuff. He said of uh, the common man, but instead of a mind, universal literacy has given the common man a rubber stamp, a rubber stamp inked with advertising slogans, with editorials, with published scientific data, with trivialities of tabloids and the profundities of history, but quite innocently of original thought. Each man's rubber stamp is the twin of millions of others, so that when these millions are exposed to the same stimuli, all receive identical imprints. He also um, had a vision of a utopian society in which individuals' dangerous libidinal energies, the psychic and emotional energy associated with instinctual biological drives, um, could be harnessed and channeled by a corporate elite for economic benefit. And did you already say what year this was? Oh, I didn't really say a year. He, um, like I said, he was hired into the Committee on Public Information for World War One, and he yeah, also, I think I read like Chomsky said something about the liberals, which maybe were tied to this, but they, like he mentioned the propaganda during World War One, like people didn't want to fight in the rich man's war, mm -hmm. which we talked a little bit about when you were doing your President Wilson, mm -hmm. I believe. And so this is one of the things tied into that, to convince people to fight, to go and murder strangers for rich people. He specifically worked in the Bureau of Latin American Affairs to help business um, interests in Latin America. So um, he actually was part of a, I don't want to say, it was like a, I don't know, like a secret operation to get uh the government to be destabilized so that we could go in and put our own um, dictator into one of the Latin American countries. He actually helped with that. Yeah. Was that, well, that was already happening before, right? That started into the Monroe Doctrine. But what are you saying? Like he, did he come up with a new way of doing it? Because wasn't the Monroe Doctrine basically like we will try to, uh, we, 
as Americans will support people for our own financial interest in Latin American countries. And so like we were screwing with them like way back with James Monroe, right? Initially, the Monroe Doctrine was supposed to keep Europe and the other powers of the world out of the Western Hemisphere. And then along with the Roosevelt Corollary, we decided that if other people, if we can get other people to stay out, we should be the ones to help Latin American countries. And by help, we mean destabilize their governments so that business interests can move in and not be um, confronted with problems of like the people rising up and um, people demanding money and so forth. So if we can have a dictator installed in those countries, then we can benefit greatly. Yeah. So. Yeah, see? Yeah, all of that. That dirty rat. That sounds really interesting. So, yeah, that's all to say that Edward Bernays was, uh, he was one of the main forces behind what we now know as public relations. And when I was in college, uh, I went to college and you kind of had to pick a track. And a lot of my fellow students in the communication uh, branch decided to go with public relations and I just couldn't do it. Like I knew that those people were, they tended to be the kids that were going to have the most success. And I just couldn't do it because to me, it seemed like your whole life, your whole career would be to come up with lies, to spin the truth. And I ended up working for, here's another word. Um, I worked in human resources, Now, what kind of shit is that? So now we're taking human lives and we're turning it into resources, just like we do the forests. Yeah, I was thinking that reminds me of natural resources. It's such an objectifying word because when you think about what you do when you objectify something, you create the image of it being a dead thing and thus you have power over it power that you wouldn't have over a subjective thing that is alive and you must have some kind of relationship, some kind of conversation with it. And I naively thought that working in human resources would be to the benefit of the employee, but it's absolutely not. It's almost, almost to the level of a corporate lawyer. In fact, a lot of times human resources works with the legal department in order to, oh, get things to run smoothly for the business whether that means getting rid of employees or getting rid of just problems in general for the company. Human resources is there to help kind of slick or or oil the wheels, so to speak. Yeah, well, if you think of anything else you want to share about Edward Bernays, just uh, interrupt me and jump in there because we've been talking a lot about him and Teresa especially has been studying him. And uh, his impact on the way marketing runs, the way politics runs, Um, around the time of uh, Coolidge in the early 1900s is really fascinating. I mean, when you look around and you're confused, um, when things seem upside down, this is one of the forefathers of that. Just like we talk about the framers of the Constitution, Edward Bernays is one of the framers of bullshit. (laughs) That's really good. I like that title. Yeah. Bullshit framer. And keep in mind, I didn't say the, one of. Mm -hmm. Um, Once this took off and people realized it works... Um, holy crap. If, if you want to Google something interesting, check out Darren, D-E-R-R-E-N, Brown, B-R-O-W-N. And particularly the first thing I saw him do, I think you'll find it if you, uh, God, what would, what could Google people to take him to those two ad execs? Like, 
shit, there's this one thing he does that you can Google where he has these two guys from a ad company come in and they have to um, create a new product um, and create a picture of it and a motto and <clears throat> probably just Darren Brown and advertising. You know. Yeah, that might take you to it. But it's so interesting because at the end, you know, they come up with a pet cemetery that's got a little bear playing a halo and um, a, harp. a harp. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You don't play a halo, you play a harp. You could play a halo. Jeez, Teresa. Uh. <laughs> I could have told you that. Hmm. And then they've got this little motto like where good pets go to rest or something. Something like that. Something like that. But anyway, at the end, Darren Brown takes out this picture, you know, this uh, paper that he's had in a folded in an envelope, a sealed envelope, and it's that. You know, it's exactly that. <laughs> he told them to just creatively come up with something new, and they're like, oh, my God, how did you do that? But the interesting thing is, you know, we've seen magic tricks that are cooler than that. But he takes you through and shows you how he did it. Mm-hmm. And it's all just random crap. When they picked him up from the hotel room, they're driving down the road. He had certain people pass them wearing certain T-shirts, certain colors, certain um, – when they go into the room to meet him, there's a picture on the wall that's just kind of in the background – uh, there's a certain guy that like is going the other way through the door holding a certain thing. And so he's feeding their minds all these little pieces so specifically that he can predict exactly what product and motto and everything that they're going to come up with for a new thing to sell. And for me, that was interesting enough, you know, that that, that happened. But the thing that really got my head spinning was that this is happening to Every single one of us, every day. This is Edward Bernays. This is what he figured out. This is why there are certain colors when you go in the grocery store, why that box of food um, has a certain font. Um, It's just endless. Like, our brains have been fucking hijacked. Hmm. You know, it's just like 1984. And this double think, this double speak is part of it. Um, it's not just inverted truths like the ones I've already mentioned where you take a truth and you put it upside down and then act like that's the truth, although that's a big part of it. It's the manipulation of knowing what gets in your head. You know, we've gone from a from being a a wild and free creature that what gets in our head are the ancient things that you might say is the land of God, you know, the natural things that were not created by mammon, as the Bible warns us against, but were the free things, the wild things, the seasons, the the way the light looks in the morning, the way the light looks at sunset, the way spring feels, that energy before spring, um, things that are ancient, more, much more ancient than our species. <clears throat> and these are what got in our head. These are what were, were part of us. But now what's part of us is what people are designing to be part of us. And that's a, if, you, if that doesn't scare the shit out of you, like I said, watch that Darren Brown video and other Darren Brown videos. He brainwashes people to rob an armored car without knowing they're brainwashed <laughs> as well. Same techniques. This is what we're made of. Some of these thoughts you think are yours, they're not yours. They were put in your head, signed, sealed, and delivered. Um if that doesn't make you want to escape society even more, it does me. It makes me feel really violated. Yeah, and even out here living out of our van, you know, unless you go out in the woods, I mean, <laughs> it's hard to get away from that. It's everywhere. It's prevalent. I think about one of the, the time periods in history I'm really fascinated with is when 
our culture, the culture that we are now imprisoned in, meets an indigenous culture. I am so fascinated with that first meeting. Um, to me, that's such a fertile thing to study. And one of the things I find interesting is the way our culture sat down and started writing these treaties with like the American Indians, for instance, and how there were these two different paradigms. You know, I think of like, what was the the misunderstanding, the Indians kept over and over getting screwed, and yet they kept sitting down and like trying to work with these treaties and getting screwed again. What was happening here? There were two different mindsets happening. And to me, I look at the Indian mindset. The Indian mindset is something like this, and of course I'm grossly generalizing. But if you say something, that is your word as a man. That is your word as a human being, something to take pride in. And if you backpedal and do not fulfill what you said, you'd have no incentive to do that. You've just showed in front of everybody, your enemies, your friends, that you are basically a pussy, a coward. You're a person who can't even do what they said. You're a little child. So the shame in that would prevent you from doing that. That's one of the reasons you go to war. You go to battle not to wipe out your enemy, but to show them how brave you are, to show your people, I'm willing to face my enemy. I'm willing to take risks. I am brave. It's not to wipe out your enemy. What? What? To what purpose? If you kill a few of your enemy, well, that, that might show how brave you are too. But to completely wipe them out, to, to wipe out like women and children uniformly, and I'm not trying to romanticize and say that never happened. I'm saying uniformly. This is something that we do in our culture in every war. Women and children get wiped out. Oh, that's another word I looked up. Ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing, yeah. Oh, my God. And when you start looking into war, Jesus Christ, soft targets, casualties, friendly fire. Give me a fucking break. We're talking about atrocities that would repulse us on such a level that we might not support these actions anymore. And so they get wrapped up in these nice little words. Mm -hmm. And so they can say it on the news and we just like, hmm, we just hum along with it. (laughs) But, you know, and I contrast that, that Indian mindset I'm talking about where it's to your advantage to do what you say. Now, you look at the mindset of the colonizers. How do you get the respect of the people around you to own land, to out-swindle the next guy, to gain power, to gain material power so you can hire people to protect that material power. You can control people. It doesn't matter whether you lie. As a matter of fact, it's to your benefit to lie. <laughs> it's to your benefit to be deceitful because who gives a shit if the poor people say, hey, you lied? Well, I guess maybe if you were a little smarter, you'd have lied too. Now shut the fuck up before you get shot. <laughs> That's the, the the mindset. And that was the the clash I kept writing, re- reading about in history. These two mindsets, you know, like it didn't make sense to the Indians. Why would you lie? White man speak with forked tongue. Forked tongue. Fork. Two paths. Double speak. He's describing the same mm-hmm. damn thing George Orwell was warning us about. And by the way, George Orwell wrote his book in, what was it, 1949. Mm-hmm. Edward Bernays, at that point, the things that he was promoting mm-hmm. were definitely taking yeah. full swing and yes. having an impact definitely. by that point. Yeah. So I've got to think even... If George Orwell, I don't know if he made the direct link to Edward Bernays, but he was reacting, at least in part, 
to the actions of Edward Bernays and the influence, the, the growing influence he was having on the government. Anything you want to say about the Indians? I, I love Indians. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not specifically. I. <laughs> well, I guess one of the things I want to talk about is honesty. Um, so we're in that colonizing culture. We are we are a culture of colonizers. It's what we do, and. A lot of times I kind of hesitate and shy away from saying we because I don't want to uh, identify with our oppressors. But once you become part of this prison of our culture, you are in fact a colonizer. You benefit from occupying stolen land. You buy products and feel like you need products that are hinged on the exploitation of people you will never meet in foreign lands. We are colonizers. Even if you're an American Indian at this point, sorry, you got you got fucked like the rest of us. You're a colonizer as well. You're probably going to Walmart and feel like you need products that don't come from the land you occupy. Mm-hmm. And you got forced into that. God, I've been reading a lot about land allotments and then shit like that, the Dawes Act. So the people, you didn't want to do it. You know, the ancestors didn't want to do it. They got forced into it. And if they didn't go along, they probably got killed. And that's probably... Not your direct ancestor. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we're all a, a society of liars. You have to lie. When I was a, a kid, I read The Leather Stocking Tales. The Last of the Mohicans was one of them by James Fenimore Cooper, and I was smitten with the, the main character in that book, um, Hawkeye. He had a lot of names throughout the series. Apparently, it's considered a very uh, colonizing book and this guy James Fenimore Cooper was an asshole I didn't know that as a kid I was just smitten with this uh, white guy that was like living with the Indians and lived a you know as a wild man out there that's what I loved and one of the things about this guy is he never told a lie and I decided I loved that I would never tell a lie so when I was a teenager around the time I dropped out of high school 16 or so I didn't tell a lie I got a reputation for that my friends would say you know well you know, he said it. You know, he doesn't lie. And people knew that. You know, as they got to know me, it was just he, he wouldn't lie. Um, as I got older, I started having to compromise that quite a bit. I'd run into situations where I was doing something I knew wasn't wrong. I'd be smoking weed. I knew there wasn't anything wrong with that. I grew up with an alcoholic father. I knew that smoking weed was a hell of a lot less damaging than this legal alcohol that he was buying and drinking. Um, but a cop would show up. A cop would, you know, ask us a question. And for everybody's benefit, I felt the need to have to lie. Um, and so step by step, in little ways like that, I found that the only way for me to survive was to tell little lies. I'll never forget the first time I had to take one of these goddamn ethics tests to get a job. You ever have to take one of these? Um... I know Teresa's told me about <laughs> she's had to take one of these, but they give you a little form and they ask you questions like, if your mother were sick and dying, would you steal $20? Would you feel it was okay to steal $20 from the company? I mean, bullshit like that. Now, I the first time I took one of these, I told the truth. I didn't get the job. It was a problem. The second time I took one of these, what do you know? I felt a little more desperate, like I needed to work, and so I started realizing I'd better fucking lie. What these things are doing is screening out honest people. 
Nobody that answers this honestly is going to get the job. And if you do answer this honestly, and it's all the right answers, my God, what kind of <laughs> son of a bitch would let their mother, their sick mother, starve and not steal from the company? These ethics tests are a definite inverted truth. Hmm. They are anything but selecting for ethical, honest people. And that was one of the first ones that I personally keyed into when I was younger, uh, you know, getting jobs and everything. Yeah, I think they, we just saw on the news there was a study that was talking about people lie to appear more honest. <laughs> and I mean, I've seen it, like all of these background checks and all the tests that they have new hires do. And it's usually for jobs. Did you say this? It's usually for really shitty jobs. No, I did not say that. But another thing I've noticed is the shittier the job, the more important, the more seriously they take themselves. And if you get into the higher level of management or executive level, they don't give you those same tests. In fact, they're kind of counting on that you're like dirty, underhanded tricks will help that company if they hire you. And we're surrounded by so much fucking dishonesty in this culture that it's a cliche to talk about dishonest politicians. And we keep fucking electing them. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, (laughs) when it became a cliche that there was so much corruption in our politics that those two words just kind of fused together, dishonest politician, something should have happened. And yet it didn't. We just kind of shrugged and accepted it. You're considered clever, I see this in movies all the time. You look for the dishonest people, and like the way the movie is framed, you're rooting for a crooked son of a bitch who lies, who gets one over on the next guy. This is considered good salesmanship, Um, a way to fudge the truth, a way to package the truth in such a way. So I've I've had to look at my own views on honesty as I grew up. And I didn't want to give it up because I asked myself, what was I after? What was it that, like, appealed to me in the first place? It wasn't that Jesus was going to smile kindly on me and I'd get the keys into heaven. There was something about an honest person that I looked up to. And when I started looking at that, if I couldn't just say the truth, it was the courage for one thing. An honest person doesn't try to, like, hide. An honest person is brave. An honest person stands the fuck up. That's one of the things I admired. And I realize as I've gotten older that what I consider honesty now is an intent. I will lie like a motherfucker now. (laughs) I will go in a hotel room, and I've always got a story, you know, if I want to get a continental breakfast. um, Because I know that this is a dishonest organization. It's screwing people over. It's part of a bigger picture that is not taking care of the poor, that favors the rich, that's exploitative, something that I don't give a damn about whether they feel like I screwed them over because at the end of the day, they've got way too much and they don't give a shit about the people that don't have enough. (laughs) I've got no loyalty. I've got nothing. I owe them nothing. But i got to look in my heart, my intent, because if I become a corrupt, greedy, dishonest bastard, dishonest in my heart, I'm no better than them. And I'm probably going to start rising in the ranks of this culture if I'm willing to do that. Before long, I am one of those bastards. What is it I want to accomplish? So, for instance, you know, I think of an example, like when I'm teaching kids. I might tell them a story I know to be completely bullshit. (laughs) But I'm not telling them that story, like, to make myself seem uh, grand, you know, a story about how great I am. 
That would be dishonest in my heart. I'm telling them a story because I think it's going to teach them something. Uh, you know, maybe a story about God. You got any examples you've seen? <laughs> well, you said the other day, like a monster or something, like a scary. A story. good scary story, you know, to breed awareness. That would be like what I would can I've heard called coyote teaching. Um, a way to use a subterfuge to actually lead someone to a greater lesson. And it's a slippery slope, like, oh, oh what tangled webs we weave. Indeed, <laughs> if you start using deceit, you're starting to use a type of magic, a type of power, in my way of looking at it, that can bite you in the ass pretty easy. So you got to be careful with it. But yeah, my, my views of honesty have definitely changed and evolved. Um, I don't know anybody who speaks completely honestly. And when I see people that might take objection to that to say like, oh, I never, I never lie. It's usually some polished, shiny Christian type that their whole fucking life is a lie. I mean, they're not digging into anything. I'm terrible at lying. Um, I feel like it shows all over my face and my heart rate goes up and I'm pretty sure like I start sweating more than I need to. So I just feel typically like, okay, why would I do that to myself? But I'm getting a little bit better at just not telling the whole truth. You know, like if if a law enforcement official is asking me a question and I may or may not even have any information, but if I do have information, do I need to divulge all of it? Or can I just be like, you know what, honestly, I don't know. Or something, yeah. you know. Speaking of law officials, that's another uh, part of this deception is we're expected to tell the truth as poor people. Um, rich people are expected to lie, and it's encouraged. And when I say rich people by extension, the people that protect the rich people, the enforcers, cops as a um, just normalized tactic lie. It's expected. Narcs, these are people that are acting like there's something they're not. Deception. As soon as a cop gets you in a room, he starts lying. Your friends have already given us evidence. It will go a lot easier on you. And I've heard this firsthand. We'll go a lot easier on you if you tell us what we need to know. The first time I ever got in trouble with the law and got arrested, I was scared shitless. And they took me in a room, and these fucking cops lied, and they lied. They told me my friends had turned on me. They told me that I was going to go away for a long time if I didn't tell them what they wanted to know. If I, if I told them um, what, I, what I had done, that they would go a lot easier on me. All lies. And I fell for it. But I'm a quick learner. So the next time I got in trouble, and I got in trouble a lot when I was younger, I knew they were full of shit. I knew that I could not trust a cop. I learned a very important thing. Never, ever, ever trust a fucking cop. They are not there to serve and protect you. Hmm. You, it is actually against the law to, and I've gotten in trouble for this. I've gotten charged with giving fictitious information to a police officer. There's no fucking law about giving fictitious information to a citizen who is paying your salary that you are supposed to be serving and protecting. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that just pissed me off so much because I've been screwed by this so personally. But anyway. Well, at least you didn't have to go through enhanced interrogation, <laughs> a.k.a. torture. Yeah. There's another handy word there. But... I came up with a list of some of the upside-down truths in our culture that I want to go through pretty quickly, by, by far not an extensive list. Um, 
One of the things is we're taught that we are the most intelligent species. Um, this is taught in school. This is taught by, I don't care if your teachers are conservative, which teaches that the world was put here for man. Um, so we're the best and most intelligent species. Or if you're liberal and you're teaching the evolution view that we are the most evolved, you know, the most intelligent species, either way, in a hundred different ways, this is taught to us. It's completely inverted. <laughs> what do we mean by intelligence? What is so fucking intelligent about having to com to constantly come up with new technologies that never satisfy us, that get us in a worse and worse situation, and that we are the only creature destroying our own fucking planet? And then, because we're the most intelligent species, one of the big solutions that seems to be gaining momentum is terraforming another planet. Mm. So you're telling me that we couldn't make it on the best by far world we've ever encountered in this whole universe that we're trying to study. The blue planet that birthed us, the planet that we are connected to, that has everything we need. We couldn't make it work here. And you're telling us <laughs> we're going to make it work on some fucking planet that doesn't even have air? <laughs> and people can say this. This can be said on the news. We can have the scientist up there and they make it sound credible. People just nod and say, wow, wouldn't that be cool? I'd like to live on Mars. If you'd like to live on Mars, I fucking wish you would. <laughs> I hope they come no. up with a way to ship people to Mars. Because yeah. the people that want to be on that ship are the people that I want to see go. <laughs> <clears throat> Good point. And that leads me to some of the other things that are, uh, I would say, products of an upside-down truth culture. Experts. This complexity is no accident. I mentioned lawyers. What happens when you're in a culture that things don't make sense to you? You start thinking, well, it must make sense. There must be smarter people than me. And so we start looking to experts. We look to people who know things that we're just too stupid. We couldn't in 100 years of study and figure this shit out. So, God, listen to the expert. And the expert, all they have to do is come out with some of the words like Teresa was sharing with us. And we just nod and say, well, I don't quite get it. But that's probably my fault. So it really adds itself, lends itself to an idea of student and expert. As I was starting to teach, this is one of the things that I started having anxiety around and finally couldn't do it. I couldn't be the talking head. I love the ego trip of like somebody treating me like an expert, but more and more I knew that it was bullshit. Actually, we started recording this episode. <laughs> uh, was that yesterday or the day A before? A couple days ago. A couple days ago. We got about 10 minutes into it and I just stopped it and said, I can't do it. What the fuck am I talking about? One phrase fell out of my mouth that like was finally the last nail for me, and it was, if you study economics. I found myself saying this. If you study economics, I hit know. the stop button, and I looked at <laughs> Teresa, and I said, what the fuck did I just say? I don't study economics. <laughs> but this is the culture that we're in. This whole like expert, we're all trying to be the expert or pretend like the expert or convince other people, oh, look how much I said. Look at the big word I used. I'm the expert. But how often do we stop and ask ourselves, do you actually know what the fuck you're talking about? Once I start stepping outside of asking questions, I start getting into some really tricky territory because I don't know shit. <laughs> I know what I'm trying to study. I know like things that have interested me that other people have talked about. And I've got some damn good questions sometimes, but that's about it. So we got experts, we got intellectuals. You know, I remember uh, reading Chomsky, one of his early books, and he criticized intellectuals, you know, people that just use big words, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
And then I'm thinking like, God, so much of what I read about Chomsky, he's a fucking intellectual. <laughs> you know, like you couldn't say that in layman's terms. Do you really understand what the hell you're talking about if you can't dumb it down? Um, that's one of the things I love about Derek Jensen and Daniel Quinn both is they have a way of describing things that are really complex, but they don't need to, to convince you that they're so fucking smart. They just say it in regular language, language we can all read and understand. When I start reading things, and I get a lot from Chomsky. I'm not trying to tear Chomsky down. I really like him. But I, and Howard Zinn too, I'd put him in this boat. And to some extent, John Zerzan. You know, there are authors that I don't like reading them as much because I feel like they're trying to impress us all with how fucking smart they are. They're trying to talk to the other intellectuals. And to me, you're starting to get on a shaky ground when you do that. Why do you need to convince us that you're smart? Just say it in, in dumb old words. Like, say it in redneck language, you know? And if it's a good idea, it's going to be a good idea. You will have lost nothing, except the other intellectuals who might, you know, look down on you. But fuck them. Um, I think it's meant to instill insecurity, you know? Like, this whole idea of experts out there and that people, there are things happening out there we can't possibly understand and smarter people than us are on it makes you feel pretty insecure, because you can't figure it out. You go to you go to court, goddamn right you're insecure. Who knows what law you broke or how they're going to interpret it or how the judge will interpret it. It's an insecure place. And we live a whole fucking insecure existence and also dependence. If you don't know how this world works, like I, I, I've run into this a lot when I talk about societal collapse. People say, but what about the nuclear bombs? What about the nuclear plants? Have you thought about what's going to happen when all the experts like aren't there to like run these things? It's only a matter of time before a meltdown. Even if there's not a nuclear war, there's going to be a nuclear crisis because this shit's still out there. So what does that equate to? Dependence. I don't know what to do about a fucking nuclear bomb. We better keep these experts around. <laughs> So it's just a whole fucking tangled web. It's multi-layered. I think this is part of what Edward Bernays was a part of is understanding the complexity. It is to your advantage. I used to love playing chess. And one of the things when you're winning in chess is you play aggressively. You push your advantage. But you know what you do when you're losing? You look for complications. You use complexity. Complexity is your best ally. And I feel like our government plays like they're losing a game of chess. Hmm. They are constantly layering complexity. And I feel like, you know, part of that, like you might say, well, but they're not losing. But aren't they? Look at the revolts that were busting out all through history. You know, to our government, they're barely staying ahead of us. You know, and this complexity is what, what keeps us right now kind of pinned down, this upside-down truth. But anyway, let me move on to another upside-down truth. And jump in there, Teresa, if you have anything to, to add. We have doctors who make a living from your disease. So to me, that's an upside down thing. And that's one of the things that I, I don't trust doctors. Um, if you're actually going to, and let me give an example, a doctor, a veterinarian. I used to go to veterinarians because I figured I owed it to my dog. I love my dog. My dog is a member of my family. And when my dog gets sick or even just for routine checkups, I figured at one time in my life, I needed to pay for this. I needed to go to a vet. But I remember one time my dog got a rash. There was this weird rash that she had. I don't even remember where on her body. It was like maybe on her hind leg. And it would itch. It was a bare spot. Took her to the vet. 
expensive as shit. The vet made me run all kinds of, or made me pay for all kinds of tests, some of which did not have anything to do with the patch on her leg, and then gave me an ointment that the vet cheerfully said, I don't know if it'll work or not, but let's try it. Let's try it. You know, they even framed it in a way like we're on the same team. Like, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm your buddy. We're going to try this. We're going to get through this. And when, if it doesn't work, you just bring her back. Great. Thanks, buddy. Pay so I just, <laughs> yeah, I just bought this expensive shit that did not work. And before long, I'm running out of money. And the vet, cheerful as a motherfucker, <laughs> keeps suggesting new things to try. Mm-hmm. And that's when it really, like, clicked with me that this person is invested. This person is profiting from my dog's illness, not from my dog getting better. Boy, imagine what it, if the vet didn't get paid until my dog got better. <laughs> and the more the vet had to fuck around and try things that didn't work, what if that came out of their pocket? Mm. So if you're a shitty vet, you're probably going to go broke. You better find something else to do. Maybe you can dig ditches out there with me. Um but that whole mindset, and we see it in mechanics, you know, aren't you a little worried when you take your car to a mechanic? We all know, like, wow, one of the first questions we ask is, do you know a trustworthy mechanic? Because yeah. they're invested in finding fucked up shit with your car. <laughs> I mean, if you were a mechanic and, like, your kid was sick, wouldn't it be kind of to your advantage to actually fuck something up in a car? I mean, I'm not saying mechanics do this routinely, but to be in a situation where that is the situation is disturbing. Um, firefighters, there have been documented cases of firefighters who have started fires so they would have more work. So that whole framework, that's upside down. It's exactly the opposite of what it should be. People should profit from doing their job well. And when your job is prevention of any kind, uh, a broke down car, a broke down body, a burned down house, you should gain your profit or your being taken care of by doing your job well, not by there being more of the bad things. Mm. It's an it's a recipe for disaster. Um, our pride and success measured in products. You know, people take pride in how many toys they have. The guy with the most toys wins. Having the most toys means you're childish, means you're dependent, means you're, um, I don't know, not manly or macho or heroic by any any definition that I would find value in? Why do you need so many toys? Are you a child? You know, to me, a way to walk through this world, and I'm, I'm using outdated vocabulary here when I say manly, I feel like. I'm not excluding women from this. You know, I think a peace pilgrim. If you want to take pride in your maturity, you don't need much at all. Sometimes you don't need anything. Our biggest heroes, our biggest teachers have been the people with the least, and yet we're taught in this culture the upside-down truth. Oh, measure of success. You just got a promotion. Now it's time to get the bigger house. Wow, you got two cars. Man, you're really doing well for yourself, aren't you? No, you're a fucking child and you refuse to grow up and you're playing into the hands of people that exploit you and rape you. Mm. What is there to take pride in that? You should be fucking ashamed of yourself. And that's one of the things I realized, and I did get ashamed of myself. So, you know, I still feel shame of like <laughs> when I have stuff. And I don't mean just stuff, you know. There's stuff that counts and there's stuff that doesn't count. Stuff that owns me is the stuff I feel ashamed of. Laws diminish crime. Here's another upside-down truth. We have more laws, so many laws that we need lawyers, laws that just bury us. Do you feel like crime is diminished? Do you feel like crime is diminished, Teresa? No, because they keep making up different laws 
then there's more laws, then there's more things that you get in trouble for. Why do people break the law? Why would someone take that risk? <laughs> well, I mean, probably because they have a lack of some kind. There's yeah. an imbalance. Of some kind. You might say, well, what about a fucking crackhead? Even they, I'd say they had a lack of some kind, even if they're not directly breaking the law to get food, for instance. Maybe because they lived in an impoverished lifestyle, their need is to numb themselves to the, the daily whatever they were born into. But yes, I'd say anytime you break the law, it's a risk. You're taking a risk because you have a lack of something. So what good does it do to make more things illegal? It just makes more criminals. It doesn't address the problem at all. And if you don't believe me, fucking walk through the ghetto. <laughs> do you feel safe there? There's laws subjugating all these fucking criminals, and yet <coughs> show me how safe you feel. Show me how well they work. Mm. See, a law is meant to make somebody compel somebody to do something they don't want to do through fear of the result. That's all a law is. It's basically saying, you do this, this thing that you don't already want to do, or I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to take something away from you. And usually it's taking something away from the people who already feel like they don't have enough. Because if you already wanted to do it, if it already made sense to you, if you'd already agreed to it, you wouldn't need the law. Mm-hmm. Indigenous tribes did not have laws. They had customs. They had taboos. They had things that if you did that thing in the tribe that it was frowned upon and there were consequences, but they did not have an arbitrary law that had nothing to do with you personally that was made by people that are somewhere over there, somewhere that you've, you've, never, you've never met these people that are just meant to blanket everyone else, these official constitutional laws. <laughs> this is something unique to our culture and it doesn't work. It's an upside down truth. Laws do not prevent crime. Laws make crime. And the people that benefit from those laws are the people that break them the most in approved of ways. Laws protect certain ways of breaking the ethic. For instance, it's against a lot of murder. And yet we have widespread murder. We have people who benefit from murder. You, we couldn't live this lifestyle unless there were people going out there murdering. We call it's, them soldiers. It's an unlawful or arbitrary deprivation of life. Indeed. That's what the uh, U.S. State Department calls killing. And yet <laughs> you get someone who kills one person. And this person who kills one person, they might have had a pretty damn good reason. I like this this bit by Chris Rocky. says, you don't need to outlaw guns. You need to make bullets cost like $4,000 a bullet. Because <laughs> then if somebody kills somebody, you'd be like, God damn, they got like $12,000 of bullets in them. That motherfucker must have done something. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. That's partly what I'm talking about here is we make it illegal for the, the small person to kill one or two people. Mm. We make it completely heroic for the the, the p- politician, mm-hmm. the rich person, to fund mass-scale mass killing. This is okay. This is great. We have holidays to celebrate this kind of fucking bullshit. <laughs> <clears throat> and it's just upside down. Greater weapons and militarization keeps us safer. Atom bombs, you know, that's meant to be a defensive weapon. Do you feel safe? Do you feel safe with all these people walking around with guns? Do you feel safer because of the cops walking around with guns? 
People tell me if the cops suddenly disappeared that there would be mass spread crime. Now, I think it might be possible that for a short time that would be true. But I tell you, I, I wish that there would be a town that would experiment with this, and I tell you why it doesn't, is because they don't want people to see that what would happen. Mm-hmm. Equilibrium would be struck. Mm-hmm. It would make no sense when the cops disappeared to to do this to your own people. You would have to come together in a more tribal mindset. And one thing they don't want us to discover is that we don't need them. Hmm. We're all taught that you need politicians. You can't fucking make decisions for yourself. We can't work together. We need politicians who, by the way, let's not notice, but actually keep us divided. Hmm. You need cops to keep us from raping and stealing and killing each other. But let's ignore for a moment that the cops actually keep us from having to work this shit out. You know, to actually come up with some kind of, like, understanding between ourselves. These cops keep the crime going. Heroes and villains. Our heroes and villains are completely upside down. The heroes are always the ones that protect our civilization, the status quo, a civilization who is killing your future, killing your kids, killing the entire planet, and this is what Superman keeps protecting. This is what the soldiers keep protecting. These are our heroes. If there's anybody alive 100 years from now, they're going to look back at our heroes and like, what are you fucking kidding me? These are the people that were preventing you from fixing the problem. The scientists. And Ted Kaczynski, he is a villain. And they're going to wonder, my God, how come more of you weren't fighting? How come more of you weren't, like, up in arms and fighting what you knew was killing you? What you knew was unjust? So that's completely upside down, with one exception that I've discovered. Robin Hood, he's a really interesting guy. Hmm. So we're talking about doing an episode on him somewhere down the road. But here's a guy that's actually a thief, a blatant criminal thief. He's not trying to protect the status quo in any way. And I don't mean the new Robin Hood. One interesting thing happened with the telling of Robin Hood. The original Robin Hood was a yeoman farmer. He was a poor guy that was working on the land, and he would go out and offset his his livelihood with hunting using the land. They started this new thing called private property. And suddenly (laughs) this property is owned by the royalty. And Robin Hood and the Merry Men were a rebellion against that. They said, fuck that. We'll go live in the woods. We know how to do it. We'll go live like wild people. We don't need your shit. And not only are we going to like live in the woods, we're still going to fight you. Steal from the rich to give to the poor. Can you imagine Batman doing that? Well, fucking Batman is the rich. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine Superman doing that? Superman breaking into like the, the Bloomberg's house and taking all of his shit and then just like distributing it in the ghetto. No, I mean, you can't, that would be like the evil Superman, but Robin Hood, he did that, and he's been around for 700 years. Every kid still knows the name of Robin Hood. How interesting that we have this hero. He is somebody that still represents a right-side-up truth in a world of upside-down heroes. It's beautiful. I love Robin Hood, but now the telling is that he himself was one of the haves the rich people, Hmm. and what it's all about is a rebellion to get his rich status back. They couldn't leave it alone. They couldn't leave him as such a blatant rebel. So now when you look at the movies, it's like they've changed key parts to turn it into upside-down bullshit propaganda. Mm. Um, Teresa, why don't you read a couple of these upside-down truths? I'm, I'm about to lose my voice. Teresa makes me do all the talking. And then people are like, how come you do all the talking? So, 
Oh, here. there were some here. Yep. Um, <laughs> all right. So liberals, leftists, um, and their constant reminders to celebrate diversity and to be politically correct, uh, to not shame, to have equality, and love Trump's hate. Yeah, the shaming is something that really jumps out to me because I hear a lot of liberals say, like, I'm not okay with shaming. Like, shaming is bad. And, you know, you'll hear, like... But shame on you if you're not like me. Any kind of shaming, like, anything that's critical of a liberal, you could get accused of shaming. And yet they will say the most ugly, vicious things about anybody who disagrees with them. But that's not shaming. That's the truth. Yeah, because if you're celebrating diversity as a liberal and then you refuse to celebrate the diversity of a um, white supremacist, then what's the point of celebrating diversity, right? Okay, so that was one. Oh, is that not rhetorical? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anymore. Um, Green energy was also listed on there. So green energy being the type of energy that's, that requires factories to produce these giant wind turbine parts and batteries for the solar panels and the solar panels themselves. Not to mention all of the, uh, I guess, tax breaks that you could receive. And then the companies receiving, of course, the money when you purchase these products that are supposed to be better for the environment. Yeah, a liberal to me is an upside-down truth. <laughs> if you want to turn a liberal right-side up, like you shave his ass and make him walk backwards, Ooh. that is a right-side-up liberal. But I don't want to just pick on the liberals. I think uh, the liberal left nowadays, like that's why people hate him so much. That's why we have Trump in office. It's a reaction to this upside-down truth liberality. I mean, the things that we argue about, gender. You know, we've got all these fucking words of like sexuality – um, that have come out. What's the the LGB? LGBTQ. Yeah. I think that's where it stopped. I could be wrong. Yeah, it, I remember when like letters kept getting added to that. But there's one word for someone who um, has a different view about that doesn't support this movement, and that's homophobic. To me, that is problematic. Like for my, for instance, I'm gonna get in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> but I have. I've known gay friends, I've known transgender friends, and we can talk about anything. And, you know, you're a human being. I respect you for that. I don't advocate violence against anybody who is not trying to oppress another person. I used to say I don't advocate violence against anyone, but that's not true. If you are actually part of a group like the government trying to oppress people, more and more I'm starting to advocate violence against these people. (laughs) They need to be stopped. But if you just have a different way of life, I'm fine with that. But if you need me to completely agree with you, to completely pretend like I support every aspect of your life, then fuck you. I think you are a Nazi. And a lot of these people that are the first people to call other people fascists and Nazis, are themselves the most (laughs) fascist-like and Nazi. Upside-down truth. And I find this in the liberal left so much. You know, like, I've had arguments. And by the way, I rarely argue with a person who is actually gay or transgender. But I don't find myself, like, going to, to gay rallies, you know, gay marches. I don't... I just... I feel like there's other things going on in the world. 
I don't care about gay marriage. I just don't. I don't care about gay marriage. I said it. There, I said it. But if you want to get married, I don't oppose it either. To me, the whole thing is there are more important things going on. Right. Our planet is about to fucking like go down in flames. I think we should all be putting our energy into something more important. I don't give a shit about bathrooms. You had a place to <laughs> piss and shit before, or you would have blown up in a big explosion of piss and shit. And now it's an urgent thing? I almost blew up this morning. With yeah, I, I did. You did. I saw it. <laughs> I think this is bullshit. I ended up just peeing uh, on a, like a little creek bank. Mm-hmm. Now, if you sit down and <laughs> and you don't need me to agree with you and you just want to express your opinion, we got no problem. I'll say, yeah, well, this is the way I see it. And, uh, you know, if we want to change the topic and talk about something else, fine. We're two human beings. No problem. I'm not angry with you. I don't feel like you should get your ass kicked because you think something differently. But I've had a lot of opinions that are just like um, shoved down my throat. And to me, that's an upside down truth. Hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, to th- this whole thing about like, I mean, just it's getting crazy. Everything's getting crazy. There's all these. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to get into that anymore. <laughs> I, we could we could do a whole thing on. But what that. about the uh, pro-choice, pro-life debate? Yeah, to me that is another <laughs> like. All right, let's start with the left since we're there. The left talks about pro-choice. So pro-choice sounds really good. You know, I agree that. I, I don't feel like I can tell a woman what to do with her body. She should have have to have a baby because of my values. That doesn't make any fucking sense. And yet, let's not completely disregard the baby. You know, I hear the stance promoted, but I don't very often hear people talk about the rights of the baby or even acknowledge that the baby is alive, mm-hmm. you know? A lot of times the left, who is pro-choice, used to hear hear about stem cell research, harvesting the baby, the embryo, the growing embryo. To me, you're starting to get into some fucking horror show stuff. And a lot of times these same people will like to say like, oh, what about indigenous tribes? Do you know that they have a whole spectrum of gender? Yeah, I do know that as a matter of fact. You're right. But did you know that a lot of those same indigenous tribes like are very anti-traditionally abortion? They had ways to get rid of... um, babies too. They didn't. That was considered one of the biggest taboos. It was considered murder. So this picking and choosing, you know, things that are considered holy because they come from an indigenous person and this other thing that gets completely ignored is bullshit. But let me not get too much support from the right because the whole pro-life is maybe even bigger bullshit. You're going to say that like you're going to fight about the rights of a baby, that that baby has the right to live, and then you're not going to do everything in your power to help the mother, whoever she is, however that happened to her, whatever mistake she might have made, like you've never made a fucking mistake, and you're just going to leave her out in the cold and say, oh, fuck welfare, fuck all this stuff. What kind of quality of life is that then? Yeah, you're not pro-life. You know, everything about the right you know, you fight for, oh, my God, embryos, embryos, babies, unborn babies, oh, the horror. And then you lead lives that don't respect any fucking life on the planet. <laughs> it's just such a bunch of bullshit. <clears throat> Make America great again, upside down truth. When was it great? <laughs> Before it became America. Before it became America. I would agree with that. Advocating for minorities, you know, I've had, I've run into this a lot. Uh, a lot of the debates I've gotten into 
about race or gender issues. I, I tend to have questions, and I don't mind asking them. I like rocking the boat. The people that get their boat rocked the most are the left. They will fucking freak out. I've actually had somebody contact my employer and tried to like get me fired because I disagreed with them mm. about a, a topic from the left. Mm. And if you need to speak for these minority groups, and I, I grew up around all kinds of minorities. I was poor as hell. I was actually poorer than the minorities in my neighborhood, um, even though I was white. And so when I have these fucking white liberals telling me about how about my white privilege and all this shit, that's not how I grew up, and that's not how the minorities around me saw it. But they need to speak for these people. Why? Because apparently these people are too fucking stupid to speak for themselves. Mm. Now, I don't think so. I don't think these people are too stupid to speak for themselves. I think these people conduct themselves graciously, fight a lot of battles, but these white people, the great white savior complex, is bullshit. And I definitely see that as an upside-down truth. You are not advocating these people. You are not doing them a favor. You are one of the oppressors, and you've wrapped it in bullshit. You've turned the truth upside down, and it's just another way to keep them oppressed and under your thumb. Mm. Keep them on the plantation. Mm-hmm. The new plantation. Equality. Equal rights. What do we mean by equal rights? The equal right to live like a white person. We don't mean equal as in we're going to leave you alone and we think your way is just as good as ours. That's equality. I see – If I when I picture a world with equal rights, I picture tribes. I picture actual diversity. That's another thing. Celebrate diversity bumper stickers. Upside down truth. You're trying to impose one right way to, one right way to live on everyone, one set of values, what you consider diverse. If you were actually celebrating diversity, little mom and pop there that have old-fashioned Christian values, which by the way, like I said, you know, I, everybody knows I'm not a Christian – and yet, I feel like they should run their business the way they fucking want to. And if I don't like it, I'll go, go someplace else. else. But what I see from the liberal left is everybody needs to go accord, according to our values. I don't agree with that. That's not diversity. Diversity is tribes. Diversity is maybe there's a tribe over here that I'm not welcome in. I'm not entitled to go every fucking place on the planet. That's diverse. There are places I can go, places I know I'm risking my life if I go, places I just don't go because I don't belong there. But this this other mindset is a colonizing mindset. <laughs> Teresa, jump in here okay. with anything. Lose my voice. Um, let's see. We talked about material excess making you happier or not. Um, if you don't vote, you can't complain oh yeah this is one of the worst everyone should vote because then everyone has the right to complain well explain <laughs> what is inverted by saying if you don't vote you can't complain okay so if you vote then that means you're participating <coughs> and if you're participating that means you're a part of the selection process so you've already kind of put your two cents in. You've already said, like, this is what I want. Now, if I don't participate and yet the system is forced upon me, why wouldn't I have the right to complain? Like, look what you fuckers are doing. I didn't do this. I didn't vote and put one person or the other in office. So ultimately, if you're voting, then... 
you don't have a right to complain because you're participating. You're doing exactly what this system is set up to do. Yep, you're complicit. Mm-hmm. And, oh, this is one that uh, affects us pretty regularly. Moderniz- modernization makes life easier. Now, I can admit that using a microwave can be easier than starting a fire from scratch, especially if you want to heat up coffee every morning. But if we didn't have this private property thing where you have to play this game, go to work, make money so that you can pay for property that may or may not you know, stay in your possession, so that you can have a house with electricity that you pay for, so that you can have a microwave, well, then I say that having a fire would be easier because you can always stir up the uh, embers and make up the fire all over again and put your cup right on top of the fire and heat up your water pretty damn quickly and not have to pay for it, not have to work, not have to worry about taxes, not have to worry about keeping up of your house because all you're doing is using the dead wood that's around you. Mm-hmm. So modernization only makes things easier in this civilization because it's forced upon us. Mm-hmm. Is there any other last words that you want to add to this episode, the upside down? Um, well, I kind of really like that, but I'm not sure how to link it in. No, oh, a couple ideas. Um that are kind of upside down ideas are reality TV. I mean, just think about that one for a minute. And uh, I had one person call it tell a vision. I like that. Tell a vision. (laughs) And uh, virtual reality. There's another one I thought of, you know, it's not fucking reality if it's virtual. (laughs) You know, what's, what's, what's actual reality? Reality. Like, why do you need a echo of reality. You're in the the, the real thing. <laughs> I mean, this culture is just falling apart. It's disintegrating at the seams. And I, for one, like, I, I'm just looking for the right spot to kick it. So it'll, it'll finish falling over. Um, and, yeah, I guess hopefully we've uh, given some things to think about with the upside-down truths. Just... They go on and on. You start looking for them and you start digging in, and it's a a really bizarre situation we're in. So my uh, listener message for this one is our friend Nina from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And she started writing, started listening, I mean, she wrote, started listening to the Unabomb episode. Again, I'm trying to strip down the beliefs that I have formed and look at things fresh. Killing innocent, in quote, people is a tough pill to swallow. Even though I get that our passiveness is killing on the grand scale, I don't want to encourage, even though I get that our passiveness is killing on the grand scale. She wrote, I don't want to encourage you to travel all the way to California, but was thinking it would be cool to suggest you as a speaker at the National Zero Waste Conference. You have certainly affected my thoughts and words. (laughs) So the Unabom episode, yeah, that was an interesting thing for us to explore as well. And I like that you put innocent in quotes. Um... That is tough. Who's innocent? You know, like, it's your very sanity. When I say your, I mean all of us. Our very sanity that makes us not want to see innocent people get hurt. And yet, we're in an insane situation that makes us all complicit. 
So where is that line where we get to to really feel innocent? The logger, like when we have forests getting cut down, there are blue-collar workers out there that are actually performing the act of cutting down the trees. Now, are they innocent? We have soldiers that go over to other countries, and when we talk about invading other countries, we might say it's an evil act, but are the people that are actually holding the guns and pushing the buttons and murdering people, are they innocent? And if so, who isn't? Do we just keep doing what we're doing and not trying to stop anybody because we can feel a, find a reason why they did what they did? I don't know. It's a really complicated situation, <clears throat> and I feel like it's made to be, you know, which is why I picked this comment for this episode, because it's part of the upside-down truth. It's meant to be complicated, and it's meant to keep us frozen with indecision. I feel like when everything that you love is being attacked and is dying and is being murdered, there comes to a point that you got to fight and... You know, the army is all too happy to just shrug its shoulders and say, whoops, you know, I'm, all right, maybe they weren't good targets. They don't stop. They don't say like, oh, that's a shame. I guess we don't know what we're doing. We better not do that again. It doesn't matter how many kids get their fucking guts blown all over the desert. It doesn't matter how much friendly fire happens. It doesn't <laughs> matter how many soldiers come back with PTSD. They keep going. What's it going to take to fight people like that? And it is dangerous because do you become as insane as they do in the effort to stop them? I don't know. I really don't know the answers to this stuff. Um, and I agree with you, Nina, that passiveness is killing on the grand scale. One thing I think we need to do is something, something. And whatever you're doing, do something else. <laughs> we can't get complacent. we got to keep doing more until this stops. If you're doing something... And this is still going. You're not doing enough. Hmm. And that doesn't mean you just beat yourself up and make your life a nightmare. It's already getting nightmarish with the way we're living as a people. But keep pushing. Keep pushing. Sometimes there are days to rest and recoup. Sometimes there's days to push a little. And some days there are days to push a lot. And as far as public speaking anywhere, yeah, I couldn't do it. I got social anxiety. Hmm. <laughs> and anything I got to say, I'm trying to say it in this format. Um, but yeah. Definitely glad that any words that we have are affecting thoughts and words. And if you disagree, and I know I've said some things, especially in this episode, that people might take exception to, please start a conversation. Um, I will try not to shame you, <laughs> but I will disagree with you. Um, and if you have a something to say respectfully, you know, I don't. I feel like if you're calling people names, and I do it in the abstract here, you know, I call a lot of people assholes and everything, but if you as an individual approach me with a disagreement, I'm not going to call you a name for disagreeing with me unless you just call me a bastard, and I might call you a bastard back. <laughs> but yeah, definitely let us know. Um, I don't think Teresa and I are hateful people. I think we have a lot of strong viewpoints about stuff, and I've yet to be approached by anybody that has another viewpoint that I couldn't just debate with them respectfully. What do you think, Teresa? Oh. She talks my ear off all day and we do a podcast <laughs> and she just like watches me talk. I don't get it. It's mesmerizing. Oh my God. Um, I couldn't even get my coffee drank this morning with Teresa talking. Oh, well, I don't have anything to say to that then. Ah, God damn it. <laughs> all right. So 
Um, if you have any questions or comments, please let us know at our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly.com. B as in break those chains that bind you. Ooh. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. And we have a Facebook page, Escaping Society, that you can find us there. Um, anything else? That's it. Thank you for listening. Bye. So, thank, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it because we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.